Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back to Teach Me About the Great Lakes, a twice-monthly podcast in which I, a Great Lakes novice, ask people who are smarter and harder working than I am to teach me all about the Great Lakes. My name is Stuart Carlton, and I work with Illinois Indiana Secret, and I'm rolling solo today. That's right. I'm doing a solo podcast. Uh, we have a lot going on, and our co-hosts couldn't make it, but that's all right. If it works for Mark Marin, it'll work for me. And so um, I will just do this Mark Marin style. And so what does that involve? I'm supposed to talk about myself for a little bit, and then we'll go straight to the guest. Um, but I don't have a lot to say, and I don't have like a fascinating early career of uh, comedy and debauchery to talk about. And even if I did, I wouldn't talk about it with you, um, but I don't. So I think we'll just go straight to the guest. This is actually a cool guest. Her name is uh, Dr. Ro- Rosalind Putland. She studies soundscapes in uh, coastal and marine environment or in marine and freshwater environments. And she's going to talk to us about um, some of her work in Lake Superior. It's kind of a cool paper uh, that I'll put a link to in the show notes on, on how things go in the, or on the soundscapes in Lake Superior. And she's going to share that research with us. And I'm really excited um, both because I think the research is fascinating and because she's a researcher, which means it's time for, you know, what. Researcher feature, a feature in which a researcher gonna teach us about the Great Lakes. Our guest today is Dr. Rosalind Putland, uh, and she is a senior scientist at the Center for the Environment and Fisheries in the UK. But up until recently, she was a postdoc um, in the Great Lakes area, and that's what we're talking about today. Rosalind, how are you today? I am great. Thank you. How are you? I'm really good. I'm so excited to talk about this. So the name, first of all, the name is, is, is good. But the name of the paper that we want to talk about today is A Song of Ice and Vessels, uh, Seasonal Trends in the Soundscape of the Western Arm of Lake Superior. And I think the coolest thing about this is that you actually completed it, which uh, with that naming scheme, you know, maybe, maybe you wouldn't complete, but you did. So this is about soundscape ecology, right? What is soundscape ecology exactly? It's a great question. A lot of people don't know what a soundscape is. You know what a landscape is, right? You, it's you're around around us every day. We go outside, and there's birds and trees and rivers. If you're in a really nice house somewhere in the middle of the woods, or there's roads with cars and things like that. So when we're talking about the soundscape, we're talking about the sounds that are emitted by all of those things that you see around you. Except just close your eyes, and what are you listening to? So that's the soundscape. Um, I have been working in this for the last 10 years and in a variety of different habitats. So whether it's marine and then luckily this latest paper of mine is on a freshwater environment, which is so exciting. Um, and I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about it today. Yeah, great. So, OK, so soundscapes are the different sounds that are out there, right? As we walk around, sometimes natural, sometimes not. Um, like right now, if I close my ears, I can hear an air conditioning. That's part of my current soundscape. Um, it's a really crappy window unit. So if you see me start to sweat. It's not your fault. It's mine. Um, but, but, but what is the ecology part? So, so, so we know what the soundscape is. What, what kind of things do you study, I guess, with the ecology part of it generally? And then we can move into this paper specifically. Yeah. So the ecological side of it comes from kind of the interaction of sounds with how we behave um, or the animals that I study, how they behave. Um, so, you know, if you went back a thousand years ago, you, animals would have only been listening to each other the sound of wind and waves or rain as well as their you know similar species or even predators and prey but now we're also looking at the kind of interface with um humans so what are we creating what sounds are we 
getting in the environment. Um, so whether that be in a terrestrial system, cars, planes, or in the aquatic environment, vessels, ice augers, uh, fishing vessels, anything like that. So all these things in the, right, in the, uh, I guess, terrestrial environment in the aquatic one are now part of the soundscape and it, and it has changed. Huh. I guess the different components then, and you talk about this, you have some fancy words, right? And so the words you use for your components, uh, if I remember, and, and Lord knows I'll probably not pronounce these right, but so we have geophony, uh, is it phony or phony? Phony? Uh, biophony. Doesn't matter either way. Okay. <laughs> Anthropophony. Those are the components you talk about. Let's talk about those kind of one at a time to understand what they are and how they might contribute. So the, the first one you talk about is, is geophony. Tell me, tell me about that. Yeah. So geophony, you break it down, all of these. Phony basically means sound. So geo is geological, predominantly activity. So kind of natural sounds, but nothing to do with animals. So in a soundscape, those are mainly formed of weather whether it be rain, wind, um, like uh, ice movements as well. And then geological activity. So things like earthquakes. And we can record earthquakes from, from many miles away and actually pick them up through vibrations in the land. But then that can dissipate into the air or the water environment as well. Okay, that makes sense. It's a lot of weather, a lot of earth. Does the earth have like, I guess the earth has some sort of base level of noise, right? That it makes. Yeah. When it's rumbling and all those tectonic <laughs> plates moving around uh, out in the, in the big ocean. Can you hear that tectonic plates? Do they make sounds that, that we can hear? I mean, outside of earthquakes, I guess. I, I guess it's only really when the big earthquakes happen um, that we pick it up as, as sound. Or at least on our time. Who knows what's happening on geologic timescales, right? Maybe there's stuff. Yeah, that, yeah. exactly. Okay. <laughs> bio, biophony. So bio, I I can do this one. Bio means like uh, having to do with life, right? And so so biophony is is um, the different sounds that animals make. Is that right? Is that like vocalizations or is it, you know, if a fish wiggle, well, or, or a, an animal runs through the forest, maybe, um, that would that count as biophony as well? I guess so. But we as scientists are maybe interested in their vocalizations. Um, and but, you know, some animals can make uh, kind of passive sounds as well. So then they're not necessarily known for it. Um, you talk about fish actually wiggling. And it's kind of like that. So some fish have like bony structures on their fins. And if they rub those against the rocks, that'll produce a sound. But that's thought to be an active like, you know, they're they're deciding to make that sound. They're not just, you know, when they're moving along. So here you're more interested in the ones I actively choose and, and like, um, uh, you know, different fish drums make noises or uh, what's the what's the fish that. Oh, my God, I even picked it in our draft. The fish that makes all the sound while it's reproducing. Um, uh, burbot, burbot, burbot. Burbot, yeah, yes. burbot, the, the only freshwater cod species. Um, and then some of the fish that most people will be, will be familiar with because they sound like onomatopoeia, the the what they're called basically is what they sound like. So drums, grunts. Um, yeah. And exactly right. They, they sound like that. Okay. And then anthropophony, um, which you consider separate from biophony, just I think because it's easier to classify it that way, I assume, even though people's people are, people are alive. Um, but anthropophony, that, that's human-based noise. And so that tends to be like we consider machines and things like that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so things from human activity, um, which, you know, it doesn't necessarily have a negative con connotation. I think more so now people think of like the effects of noise produced by people. Um, but yeah, vessel activity, planes, people walking on ice when lakes freeze over, um, all of that 
produces sound in an environment. Sure. And as you said earlier, these are sounds that are relatively new, right? Since, I don't know, the Industrial Revolution or, or whatever, certainly in the last thousand years. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we can it, they can track it back that when Industrial Revolution happened, suddenly sound became a thing. Yeah. Suddenly we started exerting ourselves, orally speaking, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so this has been studied in marine systems more than, than lake systems. And so I guess my question is like, so what is the soundscape like in the, so you studied, I can't remember, it was Lake um, Superior, Lake it's the Superior. Western Arm, right? And so in Lake mm-hmm. Superior, like if you had to characterize the soundscape, how would you characterize it? Well, actually, Lake Superior is pretty quiet in the grand scheme of things. Um, so what I was listening to was kind of in the Western Arms, close to Duluth and Superior, which are the two, two of the major ports in the Great Lake. Um, and so there was a lot of vessel activity during the summer months right? When there's uh, commercial vessels transiting along the coastline for various activities. But then during the winter months, Duluth is one of these cool ports that actually closes because of the the ice cover. And during the time when I um, was recording, it was 100% ice cover at certain times. And so it was shut down for almost, uh, I think it was six weeks, eight weeks. And so that meant you suddenly removed that kind of component of anthropogenic activity. And that was super cool to see because what what were you then able to hear? And, you know, we started to pick up potentially some, some biological sounds, maybe from different species of fish. Um, and then you could hear, you know, ice movement. And it's this super eerie, cool sound that, I mean, I think of it as like a Star Wars sound to me, um, <laughs> where you can hear like the ice cracking and crunching and moving on the surface of, of the water. Wow. One thing you said, um, is that all of a sudden you start to hear more fish species, right? Is that because they weren't making noise before or, or that they were harder to hear um, with all the ship traffic and everything? That is a question that I honestly don't know the answer to because, you know, when you have human activity, it's very loud in the environment. And so it has this um, kind of activity called masking. It's what we, we generally term it as, where you can't hear maybe what could be going on at the same frequency because it's much quieter. So it's, it's also sometimes called like um, the room effect. You know, when you go to a party and lots of people are talking at once and you can't hear the person talking next to you, yeah. it's kind of the same concept um, in a soundscape that, you know, one fish might not be able to hear another one um, because of all the activity going on around. So during the summer months, um, they, these fish could be making sound and we just weren't able to pick it up in, at that time. But then during the winter, we were suddenly able to hear all these fish. And, and it's kind of, they're almost got their own own niche um, in the in the environment. Um, and, you know, when it's quiet, let's all talk to each other. And then when it's loud, they might stop. Um, but that, as I say, is a question that is going to be for future work. <laughs> sure, sure. So we don't know. But so it's, I mean, you don't want to catastrophize, right? And, and it has been like, you know, but you could see that, potentially that the sounds could really be disruptive them if, if the animals can't find each other, especially because I don't actually, I'm not a limnologist, but I would imagine when you get the ice cover, things get pretty dark in the lake. And I would think that sound becomes relatively more important, right? And so if they can't hear each other uh, because of masking or because they shut up to listen to the <laughs> ship's roll, um, I guess that could be bad, huh? Yeah. And that's what um, various managers um, for different organizations are looking into because this is now like the new pollutant of um, the environment is is noise pollution. And so, you know, it's now coming into legislation in various countries that we have to control how much noise is produced by different types of vessels. There could be things like um, 
speed reductions put in place in certain busy areas because the slower a vessel is, actually the quieter it is normally. And so, you know, slowing down traffic in particular environments where there's species that we're interested in could be beneficial. Oh, geez. Yeah. So, lot, so but it's a positive thing we are looking at. Um, the levels of noise in various areas and you know hopefully it means there's gonna be more environmental management in the future yeah i hadn't thought about it i mean until until now but as a form of pollution so so the other kind of weirdo form of pollution that you didn't learn about necessarily when you were a kid well i didn't learn about when i was a kid um was light pollution right and so they developed this thing i think it's called well i know it's called because i just looked it up it's called the uh, bordel scale and and like they have these maps and everything is there a similar scale for sound pollution or is it kind of too nascent for that to uh take to be the case it's very early days in terms of management for that. Um, you know, the more that we share um, different scientists in different countries, then hopefully over time that'll be a thing that we can um, map sound in various areas. Um, that's something I'm involved with. My current job is I, I map sound in um, the North Sea and around Europe with other countries, and we're kind of looking at that management system. Right. Lake Superior and the Great Lakes, there's very little has been done in terms of sound. You know, this is one of the first papers that's been published on sound, um, as, as well as my colleagues who've worked on it in the past. And And you sort of hope that maybe in the future more people are going to be interested in sounds in, in the Great Lakes. I mean, it's such a small field. I, I would assume that it, it's it's uh, you got to find a couple of good researchers who are interested in that. Yeah, and and like soundscape ecology is not easy because, as many of the listeners will know, like uh, if you live around the Great Lakes or even small lakes in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, they freeze the half of the year, and so suddenly, like the ways you normally put equipment out become not possible. Oh yeah. Um, well, let's talk about that for a second. And then I've, I'm going to compare the freshwater to the marine. But but so how do you measure this? I, I'm envisioning, well, actually, what I was originally envisioning was a graduate student with like a stick and a microphone on the end of the stick. And they have to sit there for like trans, you know, like certain amount of time. But I'm guessing that's not how you actually do it. That's how it was done old school. Back in the day, uh, somebody would go out with, with headphones and stick a microphone underwater and listen to the sounds. Um, now, not so much. It, it tends to be very autonomous. So we actually put, um, it's called a hydrophone, an underwater microphone, and it's all like rem a remote unit. And we deploy it on uh, a very, very large weight at the bottom of Lake Superior. So it was about five meters above the, the lake bottom. And it had an acoustic release on it, as well as a load of other equipment. So basically, the vessel then goes back out a couple months later and sends it a ping, and it pops out some, some buoys and floats to the surface. And then you pick it up with a vessel. Because obviously, you can't have anything on the surface, A, because you don't necessarily want people to know that you've got expensive equipment underwater. But B, when the ice comes, it would all just completely crack. Yeah. tear it all up. So um, it has to kind of be right underneath the ice. And so some of these, yeah, that's right. But some of these you left out for the entire ice piece. You must have had external battery packs or something like that. Yeah, they can last several months um, recording. Um, I wasn't recording continuously. I was kind of recording for a little snippet every 10 minutes just to kind of give you a little piece of information about what's going on. Um, yeah, and then we went back once the ice had all cleared up and we could get back on a boat and go out and pick up our equipment and hopefully it, it returns to the surface, which it did. Um, it's always always a danger losing equipment when you work in the aquatic environment. But yeah, it was all there and it was all good. That's good. I'm glad they're still there. And, and what a cool way to just submerge those in. But then you do kind of hope, hope hopefully you had some 
uh, telemetry or something, so you can find them if, if not. But so we have these data buoys in Lake Michigan. Um, they're they're uh, most famous things we do at Seagrant are probably those data buoys. This podcast accepted. Uh, could we like put recorders on the bottom of the data buoys? Would that be something? Because they're out for like four or five months a year, never during the winter because of the ice. But would that be? I wonder if that's something we could do. It, yeah, that, this is something that's been talked about um, with actually collaborators I've worked with. And they've said, you know, you can put things from the surface. The only thing you are going to pick up a lot of is any surface movement. Oh, yeah, because so these are very high. that happens, if oh. they kind of go up and down, up and down, you're going to get a lot of bobbing motions, which, you know, you, you kind of have to live with what you can get. And, you know, if, if you if you can get out the boat going out to put that out, then great. Yeah, that's interesting because we have these temperature strings on them that measure temperature at depth every, you know, X number. I don't know. This isn't my deal. I'm a social scientist. But but I wonder if we could, you know, duct tape one to, hmm, interesting. Well, I'm sure our partners at Gloss, the Great Lakes Observing, observing System, are, are, I'm sure, and Limnotech, I'm sure they're thinking about this harder than I am. Um, but uh, that's that's cool. But so I guess then the depth you set them at makes a difference, right? So up near the surface, you're going to get any waves. I bet you could get rainstorms and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, is five meters, is that just kind of something you picked or is it like, I, I guess we don't know. So so you're you're sort of limited in your worldview to, or your world uh, sound, I suppose, in terms of what, what depth you chose. But fish maybe or other animals may be at different levels, right? Is there, are there implications to that or is that just uh, kind of how it is? Yeah, I mean, in the past, I've always put close to, you know, my recorders close to the bottom just to pick up any fish sounds, really. Yeah, sure. Um, because, you know, you're kind of assuming there's going to be a lot of activity around the lake bottom, protected area, all of that. Um, but there'll definitely be differences through the water column. Um, and other folks, so Jay Austin, who's one of the co-authors on the paper that I published, you know, they've looked at um, acoustic levels through and hopefully that's going to be something that they'll be publishing in, in a few years time or in, in the coming months even. That sounds good. All right. Well, I forgot. So so we found out about the winter ice in a little bit, but I, I realized I haven't even asked you for like the main deal in your paper, which is looking at seasonal trends. Right. And so so I think broadly what I would expect is is right during the peak boating season, which. Um, is probably going to be summer, right? Because you get more recreational boating and you get whatever commercial stuff is happening in there. You're going to be hearing a lot of boat sounds, right? And then uh, if you can pick up, can you pick up weather that deep um, beyond ice? Maybe you'll hear rain and stuff like that. And then maybe that'll change as as the winter comes in. But but is that right? Or what is sort of the general trends um, that you found in your paper? You described it very well, actually, the seasonal trends. <laughs> um, yeah. The Great Lakes is a super cool ecosystem. The fact that you have such stark differences between winter and summer. Um, so it's a fantastic ecosystem to work in because you get that 100% ice cover potentially happening every winter, port closures. And so you're kind of picking up, um, you know, an environment without anthropogenic activity, which was, was really cool. But in terms of seasonal trends, yes, there is vessel activity heightened in the middle of the summer months. And during sort of spring and the fall, we could pick up um, some weather activity. Um, and I kind of, during my paper, I had a nice plot that kind of showed some of the um, types of activity that we picked up sort of week by week. And you can see that during the kind of spring and fall, you get a real mixture of everything. Whereas during the height of the winter, it's mainly ice. Uh, almost 100% ice sounds. And then during the, the peak of summer, it's mainly 100% uh, vessels. Yeah, that's cool. But I think having a record of that is really important, right? A lot of times I... 
a lot of times what I say about science is a lot of science is sort of the art of proving the obvious, right? Um, because you need to establish that base before you can then do the next round of things. And so that's really, really critical. All right. A couple more questions that I think are important. What is the coolest thing that you heard? So wait, do you go through, do you actually listen to all this or do you like do some sort of automated analysis, um, you know, using, I don't even know, like waveform visualizations or something? So um, when we had the recording equipment out there, it was out for um, like a year and a half almost. And you can't listen to all that. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't listen to all of that. Um, I would be here listening to Sam for the next 10 years, basically. Um, and so I actually listen to full moon and new moon recordings. A lot of people ask me why I do that. And that's because... That was my next question. Yeah. The, the light levels, um, you know, are at the peak during the, the new moon and then the lowest during the full moon. And there's been a lot of um, studies showing that fish actually will vocalize more or less depending on lunar activity. What? So no when, it's, when it's brighter in the environment, they may be quieter because, you know, they don't want to make themselves heard. Um, but then other species actually don't want to vocalize when it's dark because they don't want to give away where they are. So um, I kind of chose these two. It's, it's, it's nice to, to pick those based on the lunar calendar. And it means that I'm not having to use like a random uh, day cal calculator to choose what days of the, of the month I choose. That's unbelievable that I didn't realize that it was uh, that the moon had that big of an effect, even far down in Lake Superior. That that's that's just stunning to me. That's amazing that that fish and presumably other uh, animals are that responsive to the phase of the moon. Definitely. Uh, in the top few meters at least and then there are a lot of uh, fish species that will kind of migrate up and down the water column during the day and the night period um, so yeah it's it's nice to have some sort of uh, link to potential biological activity when you choose your random days to listen to <laughs> that's really cool is there that same um, trend in, in marine as well do you know um, uh, you know being uh, same lunar trend in, in marine animal vocalization yeah, so that's where it's been found in particularly around um, reefs, so both rocky reefs and coral reef areas. Um, this is a very significant um, trend. And so that's a lot of what I was basing my paper off. I was I was going to do the same thing in a freshwater environment as they've found for many, many years in the marine. And you found the same thing in the freshwater then? That's, wow, that's really cool. I wouldn't say because I didn't have a huge number of uh, fish sounds. And because I didn't have cameras, I can't identify what fish I was particularly listening to. I'm assuming it's fish. In the paper, I actually just refer to it as biological sounds because I can't make the assumption, even though there's not um, a lot of, you know, other vocalizing um, animals <laughs> in the lakes. Um, you know, when you're working in a marine environment, you could turn around and say, well, it, it might be a marine mammal or it might be a certain type of invertebrate. Um, but here... You know, we're, we're mainly thinking it's probably going to be one of those fish species. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's really cool. All right. So when you're listening, so here's my question. What is, did you hear anything like really cool or unusual? You know, I mean, ideally you would have heard like um, some sort of sea monster or lake monster that was never been found before. Um, you obviously wouldn't tell us about that though, because the government would be, uh, so that's fine. I don't expect you to tell us about that. Um, but but uh, south of that, was there anything really kind of cool that you heard? I think honestly, the ice sounds were the coolest things I heard. I've also recorded in small lake environments. And I think the sound of people walking on ice is actually pretty cool. Some people think that's a bit like what? Um, you know, hearing the crunching sound a couple meters below below the surface is um, it's interesting to think, okay, well, whatever's living underneath actually can hear me walking along too. Well, this is really fascinating work. And I'm 
I'm newly obsessed with a, so there's a guy, Brian Pijanowski is his name and he does soundscape ecology at, at Purdue and they've got an app and everything for some community science. And so I, I, I've heard Brian speak about it and he's got fancy microphones too. Um, but, but I hadn't really given it much thought until I saw this paper, which is so relevant. And, and this is just, I am newly obsessed with underwater sounds in the, in the Great Lakes. And so I, I really thank you for coming on to talk to us about that. But that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes this week. The reason that we invited me, invited you, excuse me, on Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to answer two questions. The first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which would you choose? As a British person, I have to say a great sandwich for lunch because I'm not a huge donut fan, unfortunately. Are there not, I don't know, are there not donuts in, in, in uh, the UK or, or what's the deal with that? They're, they're, you know, when you go to a, a beach, maybe you might get them from like a local stand. Um, but yeah, can't say I'm a huge donut person. Um, I want to try the cronuts though. They sound good. The, the I mean, they sound good in a certain kind of way, right? You can't try <laughs> yeah. too many cronuts, right? There's a life, life limit on cronuts. I haven't had one either. Um, even I have limits. Okay. But so you were studying, you were at the University of Minnesota, right? Were you up in Duluth? Yes. I was at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. So when I go to Duluth to visit my Minnesota Sea Grant colleagues, I'm going to go out to lunch and I'm going to get a sandwich. Where in Duluth should I go to get a great sandwich? Um, I would definitely recommend going to the Duluth Grill, not only for the food, but also for the carrot cake. That is amazing. Now, this is not part of the question. However, I completely agree. I'm going to go look at a picture of this carrot cake. Okay, great. And uh, so the other thing we're trying to do is part of the reason for this podcast is we want to encourage people to think of the, to recognize what a amazing resource the Great Lakes are, both the, you know, scientific, biological, it's all the freshwater, but also a cultural resource. And so we like to ask our guests, what is, if there's like a special place in the Great Lakes to them or a place that they'd like to share with our audience and maybe what makes it, it special? For me, being a Duluth um, and living there for almost three years, I used to just love like walking along the coastline of Lake Superior, just down in Canal Park, um, or yeah, hiking along the coast. Um, yeah, it's it's so it's just it's a lovely place to be. That's wonderful. I thought you were going to say five meters from the bottom uh, of Lake Superior. <laughs> I, well, I wish I could have gone that that deep down. <laughs> yeah. Also, a little bit cold for me too. A little bit cold. A little bit cold. Yeah, yeah. What is the so you're five meters from bottom? I didn't ask. And then I, I anyway. Um, what what is the depth there total in the area where you were? Was it like fifty meters? I don't even know what the depth is. Yeah. Yeah, it was around fifty meters. Look at that. I don't know why I guessed that. I just did. Well, this is really fascinating work. Like I said, and I, I I I encourage everybody to go check out the paper, read it. We'll have links to it on our show notes at teachmeaboutthegreatlakes.com slash 60, the number six zero, because this is somehow episode 60. But if people want to find out more about sort of these lakes observing or maybe the work that you did, now that you're in the UK, it's probably somewhere different. But is there a good resource for people to go to? I would suggest people check out the University of Minnesota Duluth uh, Biology Department page, as well as the Large Lakes Observatory. Great. And look for those links in the show notes. And for now, uh, Dr. Rosalind Putland, a senior scientist at the Center for Environment and Fisheries in the UK and former postdoc at the University of Minnesota. Thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you.
again, a fascinating interview and some really interesting work and soundscapes. I'm, uh, uh, yeah, cool stuff, right? And another form of pollution, which is a little bit um, depressing. Uh, you know, it's amazing the sort of just uh, effect that we have on the environment all over, um, uh, intentional and, and unintentional. Hey, everybody, this is Stuart, and I'm checking the box, Jason, because we have a breaking bit of information here, and that is that Rosalind last night, uh, uh, after we recorded, was able to send me in two uh, sounds from her actual recording device. I should have asked if she named them. She should have named them. Um, but anyway, she sent me uh, sounds from her recording device, and, and so I've got two of those here, and so we're going to get a chance to play them. And so I think that'll be cool to play them and listen to them. So this is what things sound like underwater. And uh, the first sound is called Example Fish Sound Unidentified 1. So let's take a listen. Wow, that's really rhythmic in the way that is. And you can hear the... That's, that's really, really cool. But then, so that's the biophony, right? But if you hear in the background, I don't know if that's just noise in the microphone, but it almost, it does sound underwater, right? So you can probably hear some geophony in there too. Let's uh let's listen to that one more time. That was really cool. Wow, that's neat. Okay. And then the uh second sound she sent is just called boat. So I'm assuming that's some sort of a boat. Let's check that out too. Oh, okay. So you can really hear it. There must be a boat passing by the microphone, right? You can hear it getting closer and getting louder and then, and then uh, fading off into the distance. Let's, uh, let's hear that one one more time. Hey, that's cool stuff. That one actually reminds me of, let me see if I can find the sound effect. Um, right here. That reminds me of the THX sound, you know, when they go to the movie theater, or I don't know if they still have those in the movie theaters, because I'm pretty sure the last movie I saw in a theater was The Social Network, which would have been like 2010 or so, because I'm old and I have kids and, you know, life is busy. Um, but, uh, uh, that sounds a lot like they at least used to play this sound in the theater a lot, the THX sound. So let's check that out now. So maybe the uh, fish can get their own movie theater together and just time it with the boats going by to test out their, their sound system. Um, anyway, that's neat stuff. But it really does uh, go to show you, you know, the amount of sound that we are creating potentially underwater with that boat stuff. And you can see why it might be disruptive. And it'll be interesting, potentially sad, interesting to hear uh, how those studies, um, you know, as people continue to study this and study the effects, is it something that, uh, you know, over a period of 100 years or, or more might start to have an effect on fish distributions or populations, or it might, you know, create a new artificial or a new selective pressure or whatever. I'm not sure. Well, shoot, since we're here playing sounds of boats, we might as well go with our favorite boat sound, of course, from our friend Captain Dean uh, on the research uh, vessel, the Guardian, which is 
uh, being uh, repaired right now. So it's not out this spring. The poor Guardian, it's been a bit thanks to COVID since it's done a lot. Um, but uh, we'll hear from the Guardian right now, too. What the heck? Thanks to Captain Dean for that one. Hey, thanks to you for listening. Now, um, like I said, I'm recording this the next day, so I don't remember exactly where we are, where we're going to insert this. Um, but we'll uh, just put it in right now. End of the breaking news segment. Uh, thanks a lot, and um, enjoy what remains of the show. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this were like a Mark Maron, this is the point at which he like chimes in with like some guitar playing, I guess, because, you know, he plays guitar. But to me, it's like, well, who would be so egotistical and like arrogant to be like, well, now I'm going to use this time to show my guitar skills. It's like, what does that even do? You know, it doesn't even really belong in the thing exactly. So I don't know exactly who would do that, but it's not something that I... really see myself doing <laughs> teach me about the great lakes is brought to you by the fine people at illinois indiana sea grant and we encourage you to check out the great work that we do at iicgrant.org and at i l i n c grant on facebook twitter and other social media teach me about the great lakes is produced by hope charters carolyn foley megan gunn Rini miles ethan chitty he's our associate producer and our fixer our super fun podcast artwork is by joel davenport the show is edited by the awesome Quinn Rose, and I encourage you to check out her work at aspiringrobot.com. If you have a question or comment about the show, send us an email, teachingabouttheGreatLakes at gmail.com, or leave a message on our hotline, 765-496-IISG. You can also follow the show on Twitter at TeachGreatLakes. Hey, thank you so much for listening, everybody, and as always, keep grading those lakes. Do-do-do.